Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Matthew Rayford, chef farmer, one word, at Book and Seed, also working on Sage's Larder in Brunswick, Georgia. Matthew was originally born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, raised in Brunswick, Georgia, where at 16 years old, got into this crazy industry in the deli of the Piggly Wiggly in town. Now, being from <laughs> California, Matthew, I've only seen and heard Piggly Wiggly in the movies. I thought it was a make-believe place. That was a no, real place. it's not. It's the real place. They are and have had the motto, local since forever. So when they started, their whole thing was regionalization. They were about getting food from farmers that were as local as far possible. And that was many moons ago. I love hearing that. And we always like little uh, personal quirks. You are a fan of PB&J. You told me you used to have a subscription. Now we got to yes, touch on that. You got to tell yes, me, though, I'm a, I'm a strawberry jam man yourself. Okay. What's now, your poison? I, so my poison, I really like blackberry or blueberry jam. I really like those but because I, I grew up on those, right? So those are like my favorites. All right. And how does one get themselves into a PB&J subscription? Dude, Amazon has everything. They do. For better or worse, they do. <laughs> For better or worse, they do. But yeah, my sister got me, we're sitting around like uh, maybe about three years ago and she goes, if you could have anything as a food uh, thing, what would it be? I said, man, I'd love a subscription for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she was like, wait, what? And I said, yeah. She said, you know, that's a thing. I started laughing. And the next thing you know, every month for 12 months, I got a different peanut butter from around the United States and a different jam from somewhere around the United States. Most See, I love, amazing I love that. The, thing. The, the regionality of it, which is kind of a fun thing for a chef to dive into what people yeah. are eating. Al almond butter in California. You know, things, yeah, I got almond that, butter too. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hear that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It very much a, in a funny way, it reminds me of Vegas Vacation and getting the uh, Griswolds a jelly of the month club, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's the yeah, gift that keeps on giving all year that long. Keeps I love on giving. <laughs> I love definitely, that. definitely. Now you definitely. also, I mean, being a, a chef, a farmer, a gardener, you love roses. That wasn't surprising, but I love hearing that you're learning to fly fish. It's yeah. these little tidbits that I think I just know you so much better now that I know your PB and J obsession, <laughs> your fly fishing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm, you worked at mm -hmm. the Piggly Wiggly tells me so right. much more about you than if you told me all the places that you work kind of an intro that's why this is fun for me that that that's it that's it that's why i'm here that's why i'm here i love hearing that now i do want to talk about a specific moment in your career when you actually mm -hmm. got a nod from james beard as a nominee for best chef southwest mm -hmm. tell us when that was tell us where you were quickly and maybe a couple of the people that uh, were there in the, that moment for you no problem. So the James Vinod Best Chef in the Southeast um, was uh, last year, 2018. 
Um, could not have done it without my life partner and business partner, Javon Sage. Um, we had an amazing crew. We had, uh, we had Mickey. We had, um, oh, goodness, let, let me think now. So we had Mickey. We had Chris. We had Alex. We had, um, oh, man, my dishwashers were just, like, amazing because basically they were washing out of what felt like a, uh, I don't know if you ever seen, like, the mini three-compartment sink. And so everything was done out of that. The pots, the pans, the china, the the uh, the uh, wine glasses, all of it. And um, that was uh, Andre and Patrick, my brother, and Malachi. And they just they just like boom, 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 boom. I mean, they 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 really kept it going. Um, like yeah, to this nth power. But you know who really kept the kept the wheels on was Javon. She really kept those wheels on. I mean, she did social media and menu design which we were printing out constantly right there inside the space so yeah definitely that's that's huge it's all about that team i love hearing that and i just love hearing that that's such a proud moment for you and to be able to share that with others that's the key to this whole thing is well thank you we over me so i love hearing that uh let's go way back let's go okay let's go way back to me go way back about the person that you recall first sparking something in you that you now see being that love of food that passion for this industry, whatever that might be for you, who sparked that first? That would be my father. My, my father, Ulysses Lee Rayford, was a baker by trade from the 50s and 60s. And so I grew up in southeast Georgia eating everything from scones to apple turnovers to like fresh bread. Like that, I grew up in a house that that's, that's what my dad would do in the mornings. Like, I would get up to go to school and there'd be apple turnovers that he had, you know, laminated dough and all that kind of stuff. So he, my dad used to do that. And, and in those days, um, in the early 70s, um, he couldn't get a job um, being a baker because um, you know, it was racism and all that kind of good stuff. But th- there was also this thing that he just knew too much. And it was a constant conversation. Like, where'd you learn that from? My dad had memorized because he didn't learn how to read or write till he was 25. So he was like instrumental in showing me that, you know, regardless of the adversity that you come up against, you can succeed. Um, that food can be everything. And I grew up on the coast of Georgia too. So fishing was always big. Crabbing was always big. And so my dad liked to do both of those things also. So there was like always this love of like those kinds of foods. And then growing up on the farm, like I didn't even realize I was 18 years old that people bought everything from the grocery store. Like I just didn't know that even though I was working at Piggly Wiggly, because even then our produce section was super small as compared to the size of produce sections now. Oh, that's so, so interesting. So you're fine. I mean, you're waking up and you got those kind of pastries for breakfast. That's, yeah, that's, that's waking up. Right. I mean, right. For sure. For sure. Like my dad, and then my dad just cooked also. My dad was always like the main cook. Like my mom kind of started learning how to really, really cook from my dad. And so what was that? What was that like? I mean, it's clearly innate in you, that love of food and that passion for mm-hmm. food and, and learning and the drive and, and the, yeah. the, the, the beautiful struggle of what it is to grow food, to, to create mm-hmm. food. And uh, talk about that more. I don't even know the right question to ask. That's so yeah, well, you know, yeah, you know, so the land's been in my family since 1874. I'm the sixth generation to be on it farming. So 
when you look at it from uh, from that perspective, I grew up, you know, uh, eating 40 pound watermelons and uh, raising large black hogs. And, and that watermelon was a Georgia rattlesnake watermelon. The large black hog is, was a heritage uh, breed is a heritage breed of hogs right now. They don't even grow 40 pound watermelons anymore. You know, they grow the little small crimson sweets that just kind of like barely you need to get like three, four slices out of it and that's it. Like I grew up eating peanuts and crookneck squash and um, peas and greens and like all of these things that were just like grown at the farm. So there, I grew up with that appreciation um, and understanding that it was some toil that had to go into it too. That it wasn't just like, oh, the food just got on the table with ease. Like I, I know about planting the seed. I understand. And back in those days, it was, you know, it was uh, considered what we call now dry farming, where you just wait for it to rain for anything that, you know, for it to happen. So yeah, I kind of, I, I, I grew up with that appreciation for food um, from the growing to the eating of it, because eating was also a big family thing for us too. So, you know, I know the holidays are coming up right now and it's, uh, you know, people like are, are, you know, just talking about gathering together as family, but we ate like that consistently uh, where it was always about family. It was, I don't think we ever really did a lot of, you know, during the week, it was just kind of like who lived in our household. But by the time it came to the weekend, like uh, Fridays and Saturdays, you're talking 12, 14 people sometimes at a table. I mean, that's just family, you know? Yeah, that's like, just family. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting because that becomes the, the focal point. The best yeah. families when it comes to mm-hmm. cooking together is when everybody's in the kitchen. Right. Like that's, right. that's where all mm-hmm. the magic happens. And it's almost Definitely. more important than the sitting at the table is that interaction Definitely. touching it's tactile all your senses yeah. working. and sitting at the table is just the icing on the cake all the icing work the cake, all, right. every, everything else came before i love mm-hmm. absolutely love hearing that and i got two things yeah. from what you just said that that really resonate with me one okay. is just that legacy i think that's so interesting and unique and and i talk about how i'm the fifth consecutive generation of chef restaurateur we opened mm-hmm. our first restaurant in 1900 and great, great grandfather, then grandfather and great grandfather yeah. had restaurants and bars and my three uncles own restaurants. And so there's Definitely. this like deep seated connection. One of the things I talk about most is I love that history and that heritage that can be a mm-hmm. blessing and a curse. Right. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I talk mm-hmm. about when I got into the industry, there was a lot of people that would hear the, when are you going to get a real job? And I never heard that from my family because we've been in it. Like this has been our, our game, yeah. our grind for so long. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in that dynamic for you. Did you feel empowered and the freedom to explore when it came to food and farming and being a chef because you had you, that, that legacy behind you? So, you know, it was a, it was a double-edged sword for me because, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the seventies and the eighties. And so, my dad, when I graduated from high school, I wanted to go to culinary school. My dad was like, there's a lot of things you can do. Cooking ain't one of them. Because in my dad's lifetime at that particular point, he had never met or even heard of an African-American making it into an executive chef level type of job. He knew of people that own like what would be considered like mom and pop kind of restaurant stuff. But he just hadn't. He, and he was like, there's just too many things you could become. And he was like, so that's, that's not what you're going to do. So I showed him and went in the military <laughs> and ended up doing that for 10 years. 
almost. So, uh, and then it wasn't until I got out that um, I really realized that every country I had been in, I had cooked. Um, not because I was a cook in the military. I didn't do anything that resembled cooking. I did reconnaissance and Patriot missiles. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I got out, it was one of those things of, like, I love to cook still. You know, I love, I love putting parties and events together. And so I ended up uh, at the 96 Olympics because of this guy named David Ivy Soto, who I would consider to be my next kind of mentor that kind of walked in and was like, dude, if you can cook like this with like hardly any training, you need to go to culinary school and you need to get a degree and you need to be greater than anything anybody ever told you, you could possibly be. And I kind of started taking that to heart. I went to the 96 Olympics. I then uh, went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and graduated from there. And then, you know, within that time frame, I worked at MGM Grand in Las Vegas. I've worked for Nordstrom's inside of their, uh, with their regional director for a while um, in the Southeast. I worked, um, you know, my last main couple of jobs, I was executive chef at the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., um, which was amazing on the Gaylord uh, National Harbor uh, opening chef team. Um, and then, you know, I've been a chef instructor in just about every city I've had a chance to live in. So that's kind of like a, a long and short and kind of down and dirty. But I really would off, say that man. it was. You yeah, yeah. Off. Sorry, 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 sorry. Oh, you know, no, no. I, I, I mean, I, in your I, career, I, would definitely, I love it. You got asked. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got it. I did. I did. And really dug my heels in. I mean, you know, I would say my, my dad would be my first. I would yeah. say David Ivy Soto you gave would yourself, be like Once you gave yourself second. permission, it feels like you just went yeah, with it. Yeah. So let's talk about somebody Definitely. like David saying yeah. you can and you should. And actually, right. I selfishly want to point out one other thing when you were talking earlier that, that resonated with me. When you were talking about raising those hogs, I got to tell mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. listening, totally selfish, totally me just wanting to reminisce but when we met mm-hmm. in denver at the slow meat conference from slow food <laughs> slow meat conference right let me right, tell you right, something right. matthew you changed my fucking life and you also <laughs> you also ruined me for pork forever because you made an osabao island with berberry spice berber spice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. berber spice yeah, uh, an African spice mixture. Marcus Samuelson right. talks about it a lot with with his heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the best piece of pork I've ever had. And, and I cook a lot awesome. of pork, and I travel around mm-hmm. the country eating professionally. This is my job, right. and you you ruined <laughs> it for everybody else. That was hey. unbelievable. You and know, a lot Devon... of it had to do with your care for it. It also had a lot to do. Yeah, with, that's just one of the 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 tastiest pigs. Period. Oh yeah, it is. It is. You can you can taste the earth. You can taste the, the acorns and the, the nuttiness, the mass that the that the hog has eaten. You know, Javon always tells me that um, if I'm going to do something that has to do with um, with cooking, um, that uh, it seems like I, I leave my my heart on the on the plate, so to speak, because of the way I'm, I'm always trying to make sure that when people walk away from whatever I've cooked, that they have all the epiphanies, aha moments, and oh my God, that they can possibly have. And it, I think that it was a clear. lot of that, it was clear, right? And a lot of that comes from, you know, I, I, I had a chance to work uh, with a chef named Fritz Schoenensmith, 
um, when I was in culinary school. And one of the things that he uh, talked to us about one day, he said, he said, if you can learn to cook with your heart and let it come through your hands, there's not one dish that you will ever cook that will not come out amazing. And so I have literally taken that to heart. Um, I, I, that, I don't want right? to cook anything that isn't. Yeah. I mean, and that's just not about just cooking something great. You know, that's not about just like, Ooh, that tasted so good. Like I, I want people to like, you know, I want, I want people to be like in the, for lack of a better word, the oh shit factor, right? Like, Oh God, I can't believe I just had that. And then, and then someone else say, Oh, you know what? I made this, da, da, da. And they taste it like, nah, I mean, it's okay, but it wasn't Matthew. Like I, I want people to be able to say that. Yes. Uh, we talk about yeah. it all the time. It's why and who over what and how your why right. is so strong and fundamental and you're cooking yeah. who, who came before mm-hmm. you, who you are, mm-hmm. who you're connected mm-hmm. with and who you're cooking for. So what and how right. is fucking easy. Like that easy part is just get the best hog. What was the, fa- the, the farmer's name, the rancher that he actually was out there as well. Do you oh, remember the his name? hog. I think his name was it. Um, oh goodness. Was it? Musa- um, Oh goodness. I can picture him. And then he moved to Scotland. I can picture I remember. him. Yeah. And um, that, that guy needs a the, shout out. He was passionate. Who, who was the guy that moved to Scotland? Um, I learned farmer. I learned a lot about uh, hogs just um, from talking to him for, t- for 10 minutes. So anyway, I want to get back to... Uh, if uh, I remember it, I'll tell you. You Just blurt his name out in the middle yeah, of whatever blurt his name out, right? About. Uh, talk about Chef David a little bit more and having somebody believe in you to that level. You know, it was really interesting because, you know, here I am you know, in Washington, D.C., you know, I'm going to this little ATI career institute, this little small hole-in-the-wall kind of school. And, uh, you know, one of the things he, he, he helped me get my job at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in D.C. And while there, um, I was working in banquets and kind of like getting burnt out, like, you know, because you just, you know, you're just in a grind. You're just, you're cooking a thousand chicken breasts. That's all you're doing. Cooking a thousand chicken breasts. That's all you're doing, you know. And you've perfected that pretty damn quick. And so I happened to go in the class one day and I was like, chef, I was like, you know, I'm working banquets, I'm making some money, but you know, what, what, what else is there? And he was like, you need to go upstairs and work with the chef in Monique, which was the a restaurant, which is inside, was inside the Omni Sherm hotel. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah. He was like, um, he's like, but I'm telling you, it's a female chef and she don't take shit. And I was like, yeah, oh, all right. I was like, I was like, great. So the second chef that I actually worked underneath, um, not only was she a female, and I wish I could remember um, all that she did um, in her name and in, in its fullness, because I don't think I ever called her by name. Her name like, was I, Yes I Chef. Yeah. And, 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 and here's, and here's what, what is so crazy, right? Not only did I that I have I never really remember knowing her first name or last name because I had only called Yes Chef for almost a year with her. I mean, literally, like it was coming Yes Chef. Like I had been, I had she kicked me off the line at least seven or eight times, where she was just like, "How many times I got to tell you how to do this, 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 get off the line?" And I, I mean, this is me fresh out of the military, and I'm like, I'm not getting it right. What? And you gonna kick me off the line? What? Here, just stand there. Just stand there. I'm gonna show you how to do it. And she'd work the shift on the line. 
Like if I started messing up or did one or two things wrong, she was like, just stand there, just stand there and watch and, and watch. And so I learned a you lot. Thought the military was, you thought the military was tough. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the military was tough, but I learned a lot about humility. And, you know, I will say that I learned also a lot about understanding women in the restaurant industry and some of what they go through, you know, because, it was really funny because I used to have, you know, the guys would always snicker whenever she would do that to me, right? And I was like, but that shit happened to y'all and y'all been here 10 years. Like, like I, I, I get it. I'm new to this. You know what I'm saying? I'm only a year into this. You've been doing this for 10, 15 years and she kicking you off the line. So really, you know, I don't feel too bad, you know, but then also just like listening to her talk about um, how I needed to ensure that no matter what I did, that I, made sure that I continued to um, understand that cooking is lifelong learning, that no matter how many times I get, you know, the crosshack marks perfect, you know, it's going to come a time where I'm going to burn something and I need to know how to fix it. And so a lot of that just kind of like started falling. So between David and her, they just kind of like, and, and the only reason I remember and know David the way I do is because when I got ready to graduate, from CIA when David came to my graduation and I was like chef thank you so much for like pushing me to do this he was like we are no longer no longer chef and mentee you are now we are now equals and I was like well I just finished school he was like no no he said think about it he said you went back to school so I was originally at Howard University of Physical Therapy then I had already, you know, I'd already did the 10 years in the military. Then I went to a culinary program and had already graduated from that in a one-year program. And now I went to go get a bachelor's degree at CIA. So he was like, look, dude, you have worked all over the place. Like you, you and I are no longer in this, like, you know, I, I just automatically know more than you. He said, I guarantee you there are plenty of things that you could teach me. And for years, and after that, last 20 years, I would say David has a birthday coming up um, within the next couple of days. And I think, you know, we, we've kept up with each other, everything from the American Culinary Federation and going to events and seeing him there to, um, to just, he's also my son's, uh, my youngest son's godfather. Oh, that's, I mean, that's embedded. Yeah. It, it, he's part of the yeah. family now. He's that, part of the family. Is, this is, uh, I want to, I want to go deeper into this because this is exactly it. This is what we need to hear more of. I mean, mm -hmm. he understanding, again, that you just needed to be given permission to be at his level was an important thing to hear from him. I think the mm -hmm. recognition of your accomplishments and achievements at life scale versus just looking at the micro of your quote-unquote culinary achievement, I think see, seeing somebody at that depth, I mean, get into that. Like, What does that mean to yeah. have somebody like really, you know, really see you and not diminish you because they have a higher rank than you so to speak. yeah you, you know i think that that is why my career has been able to take off and do the things that i've been able to do because i understood that there was a level of humility that i always needed to have and then also understood that there was a level of you already know how to do this just do it and that i needed to never make anyone feel like i knew more than them but that i could always learn and one of the things that we were just talking about um, a couple of days ago was that um, whenever you go somewhere, you should always, and you're getting ready to leave, you should always leave that place better than when you first walked in. 
And so there's not a kitchen that I haven't worked in that I've tried my best to leave it better than what I, I walked into, but not from the standpoint of like, I was the best because there's always somebody that can come out and trump you. You're you bringing know? me back a lot of ways. That reminds me of the one year I spent as a Cub Scout, leave it cleaner than you found it. This is leave it cleaner than you found it. Yeah. The funny things that, that stick in your mind are, are super interesting. Yeah, that, that level of, of insight into the human uh, versus just thinking about the context of the industry, I think is really, really important. I think we talk a lot about the ability to connect mm -hmm. to a person, to, to give yep. them the why or to empower them to find their own why. Focus Don't on find that. Your own why. That's, yeah. that's key. I, I really like that. All right. Way, way back, you started to talk about another chef that you worked with. I don't know if you could recall that, but let's get into kind of further down. Who's somebody else that really had a major impact on your career? You know, the, mm, there were two chefs that I met almost in the exact same time frame. One was named Chef Erlis Bell, and he was the executive chef at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C. He was the first African-American that I ever met that was an executive chef. And at the same time, there was an African-American heritage dinner that was going to happen. And I met Chef Joe Randall. And everybody euphemistically calls him Uncle Joe. He's like, I mean, he's like, uh, I don't know. He's just amazing. He's amazing. And him and Erlis Bell probably were the two that kind of got me to understand that I, I understand to never allow myself to be pigeonholed in this industry and to not feel like anything that I wanted to do was less than anyone else. So I'll use the example. You know, when you learn how to make your first cream sauce and you add cheese to it, it's an amazing thing, right? That's right. You go from bechamel to Mornay. That's a to Mornay, transformational, right? transformational. That's that transformational, sure. right? So I was having a conversation with somebody one day and I was like, why is it that someone feels that I, that they should pay less for macaroni and cheese than they pay for Alfredo? Than they pay, <clears throat> than they pay for any, any of the other sauces. I was like, why, why would they think they could pay less? Like, it, like, you know, it wasn't until lobster mac and cheese came out that mac and cheese got the good life. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But it's still pasta, cheese, and a cream sauce. So why would you're I tell you're getting less? into You're getting into the politics of food for sure. Yeah, and yeah. Realization. And, and you kind of glazed over a little bit talking about, you know, a black executive chef yeah. what it means to be an african-american mm -hmm. to say like yeah. what, what does that mean your father yeah. having to struggle through being looked at as as not knowing too much or not having the the pedigree so to speak the pedigree right and then right, and right. then now you're like you know what these two chefs are showing me that they're they can be the exec chef of the jw marriott in dc where it all began for the marriott company they used to have what a hot right. dog or hamburger stand there hot in dog DC. hamburger stand yeah yep. right so mm -hmm. and now you're saying, well, wait a minute. Why this highfalutin Italian version versus the yeah. the diner, the, 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 the catfish the, shack, the fried chicken actually, joint? Actually, Why not that it place? Is the quint, it is the quint, macaroni and cheese is the quintessential American cheese and pasta. 
100%. And as a matter of fact, you know what's so interesting is 20 years ago, nobody was talking about Southern food. 10 years ago, people were just kind of glazing over. Now, every city in every state wants to be known for having the best Southern-styled restaurant around. So now macaroni and cheese is finally getting its just due because people are starting to realize, wait a second, that's our food. Like, we've been, we've been trying to say that French food is the best. And we've been trying to say that Italian food is even better. But wait, we have our own version. We have our own thing, whether it was created by slaves or whether it was created by someone in a great kitchen somewhere here in America. We've been doing this. We've, we've been doing it. I remember doing a dinner new. with. And it's not uh, brand new to us. In Kansas City, I was at 40 Sardines, and John T. Ooh. Edge came through, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. was, was, was talking Southern food. He had his book out, he was on book tour. And I mm-hmm. remember, I remember the f- flavors being so familiar, even though I was not familiar with the dishes. Right. And that, that's, I think that's what cooking period is about. I that's think what it's about, brother. Connected about so much is it just feels right. You may not yep. have collard greens, but that flavor of the richness with that, with the ham hocks, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. bacon, with mm-hmm. that pot liquor, with the, yep. the acid from lemon or vinegar, like that just mm-hmm. feels very familiar to people. And I think Southern right. food has captured that as much as any food styling. And now, again, you and everybody who grew up in the South is giving itself permission that this isn't, poor food yeah. this isn't yeah this, this, isn't, is a, this is american food and it should be it's celebrated american above food french and italian um, maybe the french and italian there's a couple techniques that they might yeah, have the edge on but like it's we can look few. through it's a few we can look through our lens and say the alfredo is on on par with mm-hmm. mac and cheese mm-hmm. and damn right it should yeah. be not because it has lobster in it because it's got soul right. in it because it's got soul in it and guess what here's one of the things that that I'm, I'm, but that I, I'm so glad that we're that you and I are actually the ones having this conversation is because, so whenever you hear about a great chef of any of, of from anywhere, the first thing you hear about is that he isn't the first one or she isn't the first one in their family, normally to do these things. It's like, oh yeah, my grandmother. I used to sit at my grandmother. I used to my grandfather used to make this. Like everybody. All the greats talk about like that, that legacy of who is the one that got them to that point. And one of the things I think that, that, that we have to really like dial in is that some of the greatest chefs that I've ever seen or ever worked with started at very, very humble beginnings. And if you think about all the food that has made it and has been elevated, it's basically, it's basically the, the food of the people that, that, has not really been elevated. It's still the same thing. It's still the food of the people. You know what I'm it's saying? A, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Polenta, it's looking through a lens polenta, of time, right? Look, yeah, the lens of time. Like polenta is the food of the people. You know what I'm saying? It was yeah. Coca you know, Vaughn was like throw the whole right. like man- mangy rooster in because that's all yep. we got. Yeah, you know, go to make your rooster and cook it down with wine so that it's not so stringy, which is no different from eating a stewed chicken. Or chicken cacciatore. You know what it's I'm saying? The so, I, it's the truth. It's the truth. All of our food is, is just diving in like that. But 
you know, I think, yeah, and I think, I, I think I, you talk about the family and the legacy. It's clear. Uh, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. Of giant. And the sooner go. that we recognize it and the sooner that we embrace that, the, the, the further we go a hundred percent here time and 100%. time again, we kind of shy away from it. Uh, I remember times where, you know, my grandmother's from Kyoto, Japan, and it was like mm-hmm. not cool yet to be Asian and like it, mm-hmm. it was all French, yeah. Italian. And then I started mm-hmm. to embrace it, embrace fermentation and weird ingredients mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. techniques. Yep. Yep. And, and then now everyone's like all about it. Southern food, same kind of thing. It's like, mm-hmm. well, that mm-hmm. was humble. Mm-hmm. That was what we ate when we were kids. Like that's not high, right. high right. fashion, high style, Mm-mm. high cuisine. Mm-mm. And the right. second that we start to again embrace that heritage, just embrace it. Just embrace your heritage, regardless of what it is. I mean, if you got to jump in and do Ancestry.com or 23andMe to actually get a full embrace, do that shit. You know what I'm saying? Do whatever you got to do to figure it out. But the quicker you embrace it, the better the food becomes. Yeah, because then you're just telling truth through your expression as an artist. That's definitely crassy. as an art. There we go. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. All yeah, right, let's get back yeah. to these two, these two, these okay. two gentlemen. You're in DC. Yeah. You're in DC. Pivotal mm-hmm. moment in your life. Let's talk a little yep. bit more about them and what they, you know, what they coached you up on, what they represented to you. Give us the listeners some, Definitely. Uh, so, some tidbits. So early, yeah. So I ended up working with Earless Bell as kind of like, uh, like doing a stodge almost. I would go up to JW Marriott and just work in the kitchen and just you know kind of like do whatever he told me I needed to do. Within that time frame, I found out that Joe Randall was living in Savannah, Georgia, or had moved to Savannah, Georgia, Uncle Joe, and that I should, you know, kind of like whenever I got a chance, and if he was doing events, that I would try to go wherever he was doing those events. And so that kind of started that kind of like play right there, right? And I'm, and then not, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like when you don't see anybody that looks like you doing anything. You're kind of like, okay, am I doing it right? Do I know what I'm doing? I'm not, you know, and watching them and having that conversation with them was really pivotal for me. So pivotal that 18, well, I would say 16, 17 years later, I hadn't seen Earless Bell. I am, I am now on the opening chef team for the Gaylord National Hotel. And uh, they reach, I get a call saying, hey, Chef Earless Bell is on his way to your kitchen. He's going to um, help you guys finish up for the opening. And I was like, did you say Earless Bell? Like that. And they were like, yeah. And I said, like, Earless Bell, I was like, is he a black chef? And they were like, yeah, what's wrong with that? I said, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm asking if it's him. And he walked and I'm on the phone talking. He walks in the door. I drop the phone and I go, yes, chef. He was like, Matthew? And I go, yes, chef. And he goes, what the what? And I was like, wait, so you came here to help me? Like that. And this is like 15 years later. What and a I moment. Was just, I was just, yeah, it was a moment. It was a moment. Like, it took me a moment to like, you know, okay, gain your composure. You know, it was one of those things like, wait, so I'm like the chef that was mentoring me, telling me Hey, you can you can do this. Just study the course. Just do the work. You know, be good at your craft. Keep working at your craft. Is now coming to help me uh, with the opening of you know the largest non gaming hotel um, on the East Coast. No big like deal. I'm, I'm, 
Yeah, no big deal. No big deal. Oh, uh, no right, that, <laughs> that right there. We got to we gotta yeah. crystallize that moment because yeah. I can just feel the energy. You're back there. It's like you're, you're a pup again, right? Where you're yeah. just like, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, icon yeah. walking in the room had such an influence on me that now again, just like David, is shoulder right. to shoulder with you and saying, mm-hmm. we're equals. Let's yeah. let's do let's, let's do this. Let's let's do this. Let's get this opening. You know, at the time I was um in in charge of Galaxy Diner, which was an employee dining facility. We were doing a fresh market concept with two thousand five hundred meals a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and overnight. Wow. I had a hundred and twenty-five employees. I can't even count that high. Right. You see what I'm saying? And that was like, boom, 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 boom. And he's, and you know, and I'm sitting there like, Hey chef, you know, am I making the schedule right? Am I looking at, you know, and he was like, man, you got this, you got this, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I mean, I had it, you know what I'm saying? But then when he walked the door, I was like, well, shit, did I schedule enough dishwashers? Do I have enough? Is there enough people on the rationale ovens pulling out? Wait, do I have somebody? Wait, do I have, wait, is a salad bar? Does a salad bar look right? You know, like I, I just started like second guessing. And when he, and he just looked at me and was like, man, you got this. Like you, you, you got this. He said, think about how far, he said, think about when we first met. And it only took, and it only took me like about five minutes, really. You know what I'm saying? For me to like, you know, reach back around and be like, okay, you know, get yourself together. This is where you are. This is what's going on. And then, you know, after that, you know, it was just like, okay. Okay. Yeah, then, I think that level of, of confidence and, and trust. And I think also there's there's so many details and the details do matter. What yes. he's talking about and what I think about so often is is think macro because that influences the micro versus get caught up in the minutia too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't see mm-hmm. the forest through the trees. So see? that talk, na- talk, now brother. you are becoming more and more that person like Erlis was mm-hmm. for you like david mm-hmm. was for you for mm-hmm. others what is right, it that right, they right. passed on to you that now you are trying to mirror them to echo what they brought talk about those those little things about them that you now are trying to be for others you know every every chef i've ever known always talks about working with the fresh ingredients working with the best of everything and I am trying to do that also off of our farm. And so part of my conversation with uh, young culinarians is that if they can tap into who and what they were before they decided um, to do this or go down this path, they'll become amazing. And because that's what I, I, I was told and that is what I have been doing. So I'm trying my best to ensure that anyone that comes behind me, anybody I work with, that they understand they need to tap into themselves. They really do. They need to tap into themselves first. You know what? We've always been known for partying. We've always been known for hanging out. We don't finish the night until, you know, 12, 1 o'clock. What else is there to do? You know, that kind of stuff. Folks are falling off into mental illnesses and things like that. Like never before has the conversation been like it is. And I'm telling folks right now, they need to look at themselves first, dial in themselves first, and then worry about the rest later. Because it's going to come. If you want to be great, guess what? You, don't, you can't buy your way to greatness. They say you can. There are people that, that maybe have. But ultimately, you end up at the failure. 
But if you dial into what you want to be and become and do that first, the rest of it's just going to fall into place. You know what I'm saying? If you want to have wife and kids and, and a great restaurant, guess what? If you dial into yourself and understand what your balance looks like, then all that stuff will work. If you don't, it's going to all keep coming, crashing down around you. And that's what I've learned. If I've learned nothing else, that is what I've learned. And I'm willing to share that with anybody that wants to listen to my story or um, even other people's stories that I know about that have learned that if I dial into myself and, and get my craft down and, and share that with others, not from, a, not from a level of like I'm better than you, but from a level of like I'm getting ready to teach you, you'll be all right. This is, this is exactly what we need, Matthew. I mean, we have to find that center, that grounded place where mm -hmm. we as an mm -hmm. industry and as individuals don't get so caught up in the shit that we right. lose ourselves. And that if we're we tethered to, again, mm -hmm. once again, if we're tethered to why and who, mm -hmm. the rest of it solves itself. If we think yeah. internally versus taking all that external and forcing it down our throats, be it with mm -hmm. drugs, alcohol, with the tough bravado, it, it's just mm -hmm. not sustainable and it's being exposed. And I think these type of conversations yeah. are what is going to sustain us to what's next. I love that you're connecting it back Definitely. to the farm, to the earth, to connecting at a more meaningful level with what it is mm -hmm. to create food for people. That yep. is so, so important. We could have an entire podcast just talking about that dynamic right there. And I would for love sure, to do for that. Sure. I want to talk about your unsung hospitality heroes. And I know you have countless. Oh, yeah. Tell me a few yeah. people that have really, really just need the recognition and the attention. And then let's dig into one person specifically. But who are some people that are just killing it and we got to know about? You, you know, some people that are killing it are like uh, Greg Collier in North Carolina. Um, E.I. Williams and Adrian Lipscomb and Teresa Nelson, like they are really killing it on trying to get the, that, just that, that thought out there. There's, they, 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 are, they are diving in and talking about food and showing food in a whole new light um, for people to, to, to really look like. I, I would really say that they have become the new unsung hero. And the one that I would say that is definitely kind of like I mean, he's my man, 50 grand. And I would say that he's, he's, uh, he's a chef instructor right now at Trident College in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and he just got finished. Actually, you mentioned John T. Edge. He just got finished um, working with Southern Foodways Alliance and finishing his master's at Ole Miss. Um, and his name's Kevin Mitchell. And he and I probably have stayed in contact with each other at least once a month for over 20 years through both of our chef careers. Just wow, trying that, to make that sure that we both stay on the long-term friendship there. That's yeah, hard to do. very much so. Yeah. And, and, the reason I, and the reason I say he's an unsung hero is because he's one of those guys that, you know, he, he really takes the subject of, uh, history. He really takes the subject of foodways um, down that not just historical path, but also like, here's where we are today. Here's why we are here. And here's where we can go. 
and um and I really I really believe that he his his horn should be um should be more than just a French horn. It should be more like a trombone. It should be just blowed, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that connecting the dots is so important because yeah, definitely. giving us perspective, we talked about the lens of time, how important it is to think about our personal legacy, the legacy as an industry, what food means to mm -hmm. humanity, how we Definitely. impact that throughout our time here. And the mm -hmm. ability to connect the dot is really important because a lot of people, again, just get caught in the tunnel vision. They get caught in that, in that scrum and yep. aren't thinking, aren't thinking long-term, aren't thinking with that perspective. So somebody who, who does that, it's clear to me why that person, Kevin Mitchell, would be so mm -hmm. impactful and important to you because you're thinking in a different scale and scope. You're thinking about the seed, right? You're right. thinking about where it all begins and where that can take us. And it's a simple thing growing a tomato mm -hmm. or a watermelon, but it's mm -hmm. everything, right? It's everything. Right. It's everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Definitely. so what's something that, that specifically you can think of you and Kevin having a, a – the conversation a little rap session about and just mm -hmm. going kevin you just fucking get it man like i love you what, what are some yeah. of those Ke kevinisms that you could uh share with us um you know the kevinisms i think would be uh hey bro you, you know it's not just right like we have we have these questions about like rice and peas and things that are that that a lot of times people like you know they take for granted but like he did a field, he did a pea tasting, like a field pea tasting, right? With like 20 different varieties of like field peas. I mean. I didn't even know there were that many varieties of I field peas. Right. And I'm pretty, see, you see I'm pretty I'm connected. With it? I, right. I make sure right. and I research, man. I didn't even know. Right. Yeah. And so like those would be some of those Kevinisms that are like, like, he'll bring up something like that, and I'll be sitting there, like, on the phone, like, did he just say there were, like, he just tasted 20 varieties of field peas? Like, okay, who does that, first of all? Who who even sits around and thinks to cook 20 different varieties and then cook them all using the same type of style of ingredients and then taste them? Like, I, and so his mind is working on those kinds of things. Like, when he's talking about Southern food waste, like, he's diving down into, like, the difference between Carolina gold rice and upland rice. He's looking at the difference between the southern huckleberry, which is the precursor um, to the in-hand eating blueberry that we have right now. Like he's 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 looking at those kinds of things and talking about how you know pumpkin is was a very European style pie, and how sweet potatoes and yams were basically the, or the yam being used like that um, by Africans was like the way of why there's pumpkin pie and why there's sweet potato pie and both of them are kind of having those, those kind of looks and using very similar ingredients to cook with. And so he looks at stuff like that. And so those are those things that I think that um, when you, when you have a conversation with Kevin, you're going to be sitting back going, man, I, you know, if you didn't think there was that many uh, field peas, wait till you find out uh, sweet potatoes and yams. That's a whole nother conversation. I can't wait. I'm tripping right now. I can't wait to actually yeah. talk to Kevin. And I'm my fucking mind blown because I love right. people like that. They just yeah. go deep. They go yeah, deep very all deep. the way yeah. until you're, and there's nothing left. They Definitely. will dig and dig and dig. They're so, so important. I think what's interesting mm -hmm. is that people like that seem to have this 
crazy balance of being so analytical and he's a researcher mm -hmm. and there's there's a lot of science and data that goes into that mm -hmm. but the level of creativity it takes to even understand how to start that type of how that discovery it, right is mm -hmm. so creative and they don't get enough yeah. credit for the level of creativity it takes to go down that rabbit hole i cannot wait mm -hmm. to talk to kevin i want Definitely. to leave us all with a quote really a a, a proverb that you gave us mm -hmm. To take this out into the world to make it right. a better place. Right. It's a long proverb. I am going to do my best to do it justice. No worries. So you say, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter if you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. Yeah. What does yeah. that mean to you? It's, it's beautiful. So, it's so, poetic. It also yeah. is kind of funny. It reminds me of, you know, the polar bear chasing the guys and the guy tightening his shoes and said, I don't have to outrun the polar bear. I just have to outrun you. Right. What is that? Definitely. That's, that's deep. Know, what does it mean? Yeah. You know, for me, you know, oftentimes people think that, uh, you know, that they've arrived once they finished something, you know, like, Ooh, I've, I've, I finished culinary school. I should be called chef right now. No, you better be running. Like, like, trust me, somebody else is out there that, that's, that's hungrier than you are. Like, if you start your day off and get lackadaisical, you will starve to death. Or you'll be eaten alive. Those, I mean, and that, that's just the way the world is. Like, you, you have to, you know, I told my daughter something a while back. I said, you know what, if you really want to make it you have to dig your heels in you know like a like a track star you know how they dig their heels in right before they're getting ready to take off you got to dig your heels in have a plan and work the plan that's what that's that's what that whole thing is about like that lion knows that when i wake up in the morning i got to run faster than the slowest gazelle so he has a plan i'm going to eat today right the gazelle knows when it wakes up in the morning, I got to, when I, when I notice that this is about to happen, I need to take off and be ahead of the pack. I need to be at the forefront and I got to be looking because sometimes the trap is they got us running, but then the rest of the lines are coming the other way. Like you got to be ready. And also don't step out there into anything outside of a desk job. If you ain't ready to be an entrepreneur, if you're not ready, to like put your your all into it, don't do it. I Just hear it. I hear it. a lot about self awareness and what you're saying. A lot mm -hmm. about complacency, mm -hmm. and a lot about drive and hunger. Drive and hunger. That's that's so important. You are a preacher, my friend. I love <laughs> talking to you. No problem, and brother. the value that you're bringing the industry as a whole, what you're doing, connecting us back to the earth through your food, has Thank to be you. celebrated, has to be put on a pedestal. Thank you for the impact definitely. you're having on the industry, Matthew. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. You know, I, I have, um, like I said, we have these three projects that we have coming up. We have uh, uh, Sage's Larder, where Javon is uh, definitely um, pushing her birth workout. And you were telling me that your wife, um, also is a doula, which, you know, we, I think we, we might have to get them on talking about nutrient dense food 
at some point. Um, I cannot wait for that. I'm pushing my wife to do her own podcast because she she needs permission to be a a, a powerhouse because she's given natural birth to two children. She is awesome. one of the toughest people I've ever met. She's passed on that, that love for birth and, mm-hmm. and brought multiple children into this world. She is yeah. health and wellness all day long. We call mm-hmm. her the hearty, the hearty mama. Not only because she's the hearty mama, but she's fucking <laughs> strong, man. Like she strong, will fuck you right? up. You know, I, I, I just you. absolutely I love it. And so I, I can you. respect yeah. that to the nth degree. And what else yeah. are you guys working on? So we also have, we have that, um, we have the book and seed project, which we're starting to push on. And that has to do with seed saving. Um, and we're looking possibly to acquire more land so that we can make sure that we can do those kinds of things. Um, and then we have the gin coming out with simple man distillery out of Atlanta. Um, it's a hibiscus gin where Javon, um, has taken all her alchemist stuff and we now have grown all the botanicals for it. Um, we've added the hibiscus to it. And um, if everything works out right, by the end of the, well, shoot, by the end of December or by mid-December, we should start having it um, in the cases and starting to uh, starting to sell it. So I'll have to make sure I send you a bottle or two. December 2019 is going to be a good month, good year. I'm thirsty. Yeah. I'm hungry. Truly Definitely. appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you. Cheers. Now our buddy, Chef Farmer Matthew Rayford, has really been laying down quite a picture of a storied career, his heritage, falling back in love with Southern food, so much being connected to the earth. And he gave a shout out to Kevin Mitchell. Very excited to have Kevin on the line. Kevin, thanks for talking with us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's really great. I could tell from Matthew's voice and the exuberance that uh, your relationship means a lot. So we'd love to hear just a little bit about you and then get into what that relationship is and, and why it's so meaningful to Matthew and kind of what it means to you. So tell us, you know, where were you born and raised, the origin story, and get right up to your first job in the careers in this industry is what we like to hear about. Okay. Um, you know, born and raised in, in New Jersey. Um, and, you know, my, I guess my path to what I'm doing now or my path to becoming a chef starts in New Jersey, starts with learning how to cook from my grandmother at the six, at the age of six years old. Um, you know, coming from a single parent home, with three brothers, of course, spending a lot of time with my grandmother as my mom worked, you know, the many jobs she needed to work to take care of four boys on her own. Um, my grandmother would, she would actually make me stay in the house to learn how to cook and let my brothers go out and play. And, you know, a five or six year old kid, you don't really understand. Like, I was like, hey, grandma, how come I can't go outside and play? with my brothers and do what, you know, young boys do at five and six years old. And oh, were you the youngest? I'm, I'm two, I'm number two of four. Okay. Five, yes. Two of five. My younger brother, number five passed um, when he was about two to three months old. Sorry so to hear it. Yeah. Thank you. So it's two, number two of five. Um, but I would ask her, how come I could not go out and play and do those things? And she sat me down and just said, you know, one day, you know, your mother 
or I are not going to be here to to cook your meals and you know even wash your clothes or iron your clothes and you know you need to know how to do it and still I was kind of like well what about the other three guys how come it's just me so I really believe that um she saw she saw something in me um which led me down this path of you know becoming a chef and and of course into continuing into what I do now um but you know, have then, you have you reflecting on that relationship with your grandmother and so many of us have those relationships you know grandmothers mothers fathers and they're deep seated in where we're cooking have you reflected on that and what did she see in you um i mean i definitely have ref- i mean i reflect on reflect on it every day i mean i feel like you know without her you know basically making me stay in and learn how to how to cook you know it's just you know of course we have a very strong bond and we still have that bond today and thankfully she's still alive to see you know the successes the things that I've been able to achieve and accomplish um throughout my career um but I do you know and I I don't necessarily know for sure exactly what she may have seen um I just feel as though we we just really connected you know around food and you know she's always and I tell people my students and people around me that food is the one thing that brings people together and that was something that she would always say to me as we were you know in this you know you know elbows deep in in water cleaning you know a sink full of collard greens or you know, cleaning chicken or picking peas. Um, she would always say that to me. And it always, you know, I always think about that, um, both in a negative and a positive way, because later on in my career, I found out that though she was right on in, in her way, that in a positive way that food brings people together, but it also is has some negative connotations as well. Um, so, but just having that bond and, you know, I just, I, like I said, I don't necessarily can't pinpoint exactly what she saw. Um, I'm glad whatever it is that she saw, um, uh, because it's done, it's done me very well. And it's, you know, once again, it's carried on into what I'm doing today, um, and continuing some of those, you know, the traditions that we, that we hold very, you know, near and dear to us. And just the fact of me being, you know, a chef definitely comes from her. And of course it leads into kind of, you know, in high school taking food service or cooking classes in high school, which leads me into kind of my first actual real job in, in a kitchen, you know, at 16 years old. Um, I, all my 16th birthday, actually, I go to a neighborhood restaurant in New Jersey where I'm living and it's a pretty popular restaurant. It's a small French restaurant that my food service teacher recommends that I go to to get a to get a job. Now, of course, not necessarily knowing the inner workings of how kitchens or professional kitchens work, um, I go in there thinking, "Hey, I'm going to get a job as a prep cook, and I'm going to, you know, do these things, and I'm going to become the chef." And you know, fortunately, the owner that interviewed me. Um, 
said, well, he, I had this really glowing letter of recommendation and the owner says, well, Kevin, I really like what your teacher has to say. However, I will hire you, but you have to start off at the bottom. And at 16, I'm like, okay, well, what's the bottom? And he says, you know, so he walks me into the kitchen and he takes me directly over to the three compartment pot sink. And I'm, and there's this guy there, you know, knee deep in dirty pots and pans, scrubbing them. And he goes, this is where you're going to have to start if you want to work in this restaurant. Welcome and, to the kitchen. And that's exactly what it was. And he walks me over to the dish machine and I'm standing there at the dish machine washing, watching this woman load in and load out dishes out of this dishwasher. And he says, well, what do you think? And I wanted the job. Um, I was really enamored by being in the kitchen and seeing a professional kitchen. Um, so, you know, I took, I took the job. But, you know, kind of going back, the reason why I wanted to be a chef was I was with my grandmother again, and I was watching television. And there was something on TV about the Culinary Olympics, which is, of course, this huge competition where, of course, the United States, they compete against other countries. And it's held every four years, just like the regular sports Olympics. But it's a cooking competition. And I see these guys in these crisp white jackets and these tall white hats. And I'm, like, enamored by it. I'm like, wow, this is this is it. And I remember going into her room and saying, Grandma, Grandma, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And she goes, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, I want to be a chef. And she goes, oh, that's great. So you want to be a cook? And I said, no, Grandma, (laughs) I want to be a chef. Like, so even then I kind of knew that there was a difference between just being a cook and being a chef. And then of course that kind of leads me into taking these classes in high school. And then it leads me into this first job at the restaurant. Um, that was called Cafe Gallery, and I worked there for the summer. Um, and in the fall is when they started allowing me to kind of do, you know, do a little menial prep jobs and help, you know, pick pick greens or you know, cut the tops off the of strawberries, really small things, just to kind of see if I was really serious about wanting to be in this profession. And you know, I worked my way up. Um, I worked at that place for three years throughout my high school time. And towards the end of that third year, I was being promoted to the sous chef, the assistant chef. And I decided I would turn down that position because I wanted a formal education. And that's when I decided I was going to go to culinary school. And the chef I was working for was a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, um, he was, of course, very big on me going to CIA, but of course, in that area where I lived, there were so many other, you know, the Philadelphia Restaurant School was right across the bridge in Philadelphia. There was um, a culinary program in Atlantic City that I could have gone to, um, but, you know, to kind of seal the deal, the chef one day schedules me in to work. And I go in and I'm, I go change. I'm in my uniform and I come downstairs and I'm going to go set up my station. And 
He's like, what are you doing? I was like, well, chef, you told me to come in. You know, you put me on the schedule. He goes, go upstairs and put change your clothes. Put your put your regular clothes back. So go upstairs. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on? And come to find out, he was going, he was actually going to physically take me to CIA so I can see the school and tour the school before I actually made the decision. And he worked it out with my mom. He, my mom knew he was going to take me. Um, and we made the three-hour drive to Hyde Park and spent the whole entire day just touring the campus of CIA. And of course, wow, what an honor that is. Just, you know, people see that in you. It's clear that people continuously see that something in you. And maybe we'll find what that is through this conversation a little bit. I think that's, I think that's fascinating because yeah. everyone else knew what that little glint was you may may have not known it but it was obvious clearly to everybody and there's like we're taking you on this journey whether you like it or not even though you were in it all the way now i know cia is where you and matthew first That's uh, where we were in the same uh atmosphere yes. yet it wasn't until like a little bit later actually that you guys met so let's let's get into your relationship with with matthew a little bit uh just touch on i think it's interesting how you kind of mentioned the forces that we're bringing together. Touch on that, and then I really want to get uh, current a little bit yeah. and talk about what you're doing now and then how you guys are forming your relationship currently. So what was that first, the that first, first meetup? First interaction actually was via, via email. Um, you know, we, we knew we are friends, like my friends would – you know, who knew me and who knew kind of like where my head was at um, as far as being a chef. And it was mainly because watching that television program and not seeing anyone that looked like me. So there was no, there were no African-American chefs in this news article on that culinary Olympic team. So my journey as far as into culinary was always wanting to understand, well, why there are not African-Americans in, in professional kitchens from what I saw at that, at that particular point in my life. Cause once again, I'm 16 years old at this point when I start working in a restaurant, I t I'm almost 19 when I go to culinary school. So people knew um, my friends would say, Hey, you really need to meet this guy named Matthew Rayford. And then, Matthew had friends in his camp that would say, man, the work that you're doing, you know, you remind me of this guy named Kevin Mitchell. You need to meet Kevin Mitchell. And he actually um, sent out the first email. Somehow he got my personal email address and he sent me, sends me this email um, to just basically saying he wanted to connect. Um, he wanted to, you know, kind of understand you know, what I, the work that I want to do and, and, and how this leads me to culinary school. And just basically just saying, hey, I want to form a, a relationship. I want to form a friendship with you. And maybe one day we can work together and we can meet up. And we just, you know, and, and it was just a way for us to, to build a relationship for us to encourage and inspire one another. You know, when, you know, when we're going through things, you know, especially there at CIA, I mean, it's the premier culinary school in the country, right? and there's not many African Americans at that particular point when I was there. This was back in 89 through 91. Um, so it's easy for a young African American to kind of get lost in the shuffle, 
right? So we just were emailing each other back and forth, just saying, hey, you know, um, hey, um, you need some advice, I'm here. You need a, an ear, you know, to listen to, I'm here. And that's basically how our friendship relationship started until after we we had graduated and I was new to Atlanta and he had found out where I was working and like one day he just was working at this hotel downtown Atlanta and he just kind of shows up <laughs> and he asks you know someone to say hey you know I'm looking for chef chef Kevin chef Mitchell is he around and we physically met that at that moment laying eyes on one another and then from that point you know we've once again we've been friends and colleagues ever since and i've known matthew for well over 20 years i just love this conversation i love how it's just yes yes to people in your uh environment saying hey think about this hey look over here hey i i see this person or Let's take the three-hour drive. Let's stay inside and cook. Clearly, people are just kind of helping guide you. And a lot of the reason that what we're talking about now has crystallized for you is you say yes. I think that's interesting because most people say no. Yes. And they're closing the doors to too many opportunities. And so we're, you and I are having this conversation because clearly people see something they point it out to you and you say, yes, I absolutely love that. I think more people need to have that attitude generally and especially in the industry. I think it's, I think it's really great. So then we're coming all the way contemporary. So give us uh, just a little bit about what you're personally working on and then let's get into what your relationship with Matthew is these days. Cause I know it's, it's escalating in the most positive way possible. Well, you know, so fast forward to, you know, 2019, um, as of right now, you know, my main job is, or, you know, profession, I am a chef instructor here at the Culinary Institute of Charleston. Um, so I teach at a culinary school and I've been teaching here. Um, actually, December the 18th will be 11 years that I've been here in Charleston and here teaching at the school. And that, once again, that come, this position comes through other connections in the industry um, where, you know, a friend of mine knew the dean here of the school, and they were specifically looking for an African-American <laughs> chef who had a specific background. And so be it, I was looking for a new opportunity. At the time, I was in Michigan working for MGM um, Hotels and Casinos. And I was looking for a new opportunity. I was actually looking to get back to the South because at one point, I once again, I was, you know, I was living in Atlanta and my, the hotel company transferred me to, to Michigan. And so my, our mutual friend says, hey, you know, what do you think about teaching? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, maybe later on and when, um, you know, because I, I still, of course, have the passion and the fire for being in the restaurant and, and, and living in that world. When I was like, well, what, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, what do you think about Charleston? Charleston was definitely on a list of places that I wanted to visit. I had been reading a lot about the, um, the culinary and the food scene here in Charleston 
that was growing. Um, and, he, and I said, well, okay, so what's up with Charleston? He goes, well, there's a culinary school. They're looking specifically for an African-American chef to come in and be a faculty member and teach. Um, and I was kind of a little confused because I'm thinking, well, in the South, you know, Atlanta, you know, Charlotte, Charleston, this whole area, I'm thinking, you know, there's a plethora of African-Americans and it's kind of like, well, you're, you know, you're telling me that they can't find an African-American chef that they could hire to, to become a faculty member. And, you know, once I started kind of interviewing for the position, you know, I connected with the Dean as a favor, actually to my friend, he was like, look, just do me a favor. Just connect with the Dean, see what it's about. And if you're interested, great. If you're not, you know, no harm, no foul. And connected with the Dean and the Dean actually, <laughs> he actually, he came to Michigan to meet me in person while he was on vacation actually in Michigan. And we, it was interesting. We interviewed for my position over hot dogs and beer at a Detroit Tigers game, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. All right. Some uh, highbrow culinary conversations, huh? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he, we were just having these discussions about, you know, what he was looking for in a faculty member. And most importantly, you know, someone that's African-American, you know, our student body in our culinary program at that time was well over 40% African-American. They did not have an African-American chef here. And then, but they needed someone once again with a specific background and the education. And fortunately, I had a bachelor's degree, which is what they needed. Um, unfortunately, a lot of African Americans, they go to culinary school, they get their associates, and they don't continue their education. Fortunately, I had a mother who actually, she forced me to go back to get my bachelor's degree. I was nowhere near wanting to go back to get my bachelor's degree, but she was like, no, you're going, you know, and I, and I have people in my life like that, you know, once again, my grandmother, then of course my mother, who's like, no, you're going. And it was one of the best decisions that I made to, to go. So I came, I interviewed, I toured the city. I fell in love. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to Charleston, but it's, it's a beautiful city. It's a lot of history here. You know, the culinary scene is just, it's, it's fantastic. And I decided that I was going to, you know, take the plunge and move my life to Charleston. And I've been here ever since. Yeah, um, Charleston is high on my list. And uh, now I have another reason to come. One of the guys that came up with in the industry, we were like young sous chefs together, is Jason Stanhope, who's been the chef. Jason Stanhope, he is... He's the man here. I, one of the best. He's one yeah, of the best. I love going to um, Fig and having dinner there. I've been there a few times. And I've worked with Jason a few times, too. So he's, I mean, and, of course, a James Beard winner, doing some really great things here in the city, along with some of the other great chefs here, too. Yeah, it is, it is a flourishing scene there for sure. So you're – you're at the culinary school now. You're in education. Matthew also moves himself into educational roles, mm -hmm. and then really reconnecting with the South in a really, 
meaningful way for both of you. So let's talk about now. I know there's a couple interesting things that, yeah. that you guys are doing now to support yeah. each other, push each other. Oh, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit, that relationship. Oh, yeah. So like you said, that the, the education um, for both of us kind of brings us to this, this kind of a, you know, epiphany about, about the South. Um, and of course we take, of course we take two different paths, but, um, uh, for me at one particular point, I decide I'm going to go get my master's and I'm going to go to the university of Mississippi to get my master's in Southern studies, where basically it is a program that studies the South, but each person that comes into the program is on their own path. So for me, it was about Southern food ways, Southern food culture, the revitalization of Southern ingredients. And something I had always been passionate about was the history of African-Americans and cooking. So Matthew, of course, he takes his path, which brings him, basically it brings him closer to the earth. And it, you know, he, he turns into chef farmer. <laughs> Uh, Matthew, and when he first came up with that moniker, you know, we, I, I get, I, you know, I give him a hard time about it because it's like, what are you talking about, you know? But, but after, of course, you know, just really seeing what he's doing and what he has been doing, you know, it's, it's the perfect, perfect thing for him. Um, for me, once again, getting to understand the food of the South, but then I take kind of a, a different appro- approach because I'm looking at those who actually cook the food. So I start focusing in on the formerly enslaved and freed cooks, specifically in Charleston, who make Southern food what it is today. And that just comes from, I was able to recreate a a dinner that was held in 1865 in the city of Charleston um, by a formerly enslaved chef who owned his own restaurant and at the end of the civil war he hosts this dinner where for the first time blacks and whites eat in the same place they eat in the same room and they eat with the spirit of equality and the spirit of reconciliation and the story comes to me from a a mutual friend of matthews and i dr david shields and we set on this path to recreate the dinner. And that's what we do. We, we recreate it in 2015, kind of to mark the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War. Um, so, and actually that is a connection once again through Matthew because he knew Dr. Shields prior to not, to, not to, to me. And he tells Dr. Shields that I am the one that should be standing in the place of this formerly enslaved chef. His name was Nat Fuller. And so he's telling Matthew the story, and Matthew is saying, hey, Kevin needs to be the one to recreate this dinner. So once again, you know, Matthew is still, you know, we still are forming these connections. Um, and to what we're doing kind of today, uh, we're just following through with with one another, you know. Whether you know we're we're, we're on different paths, s- somewhat, you know, but you know we we definitely continue to encourage and inspire one another. You know, one day he calls me and he's like, "Hey, I think we need to do like weekly calls to one another." 
I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Because no, yeah, let's you know pick a day. That's and we pick Friday because you know I don't have I don't teach on Fridays and Fridays is pretty much an off day for me and somewhat for him. So he says pick a Friday and we're just gonna call each other. We're gonna talk about um, our projects, what we're working on separately, and figure out how we can connect those projects where we can work on them together. And also let's work on some, let's create some other projects, you know, where we, you know, we're working on doing a dinner to honor black chefs and black farmers um, at the James Beard house. Um, these calls are also a way for us to kind of hold each other to the fire to say, okay, Kevin, you said that you were going to reach out and contact this person to make this thing happen. Did you do that? And I do the same thing for him. I'm like, okay, Matthew, last week you said, blah, blah, blah. Have you spoken to this person? What is the, what is the status on, on your project? So once again, still keeping that connection and keeping that, that friendship and that relationship where we can continue to be successful on our own right. And then of course, looking for ways for us to be successful together. Yeah, that's everything. It's everything to be able to have accountability for yourself and accountability uh, to others and that level of support. And I like that it's, it's both supportive and nurturing, but also, like I said, feet to the fire, like let's, let's get our asses in gear. Yeah. Let's, yes. let's stay motivated. And I think that's super great. I think more people need to hear that, that, uh, you know, holding yourself accountable and holding others accountable is part of what makes the kitchen great. As long as there's the trust right yep. in that is so, so important and the confidence in each other. And so it's not, why aren't you doing this? It's how can I support you to do more of it, to do better? And I think, I think that's really, really great. So the James Beard dinner I, I see is something really, really important. Any other little nuggets of, of things yeah. you guys have been working on, thinking about in kind of these last couple of seconds we have to talk and, yeah. and something kind of what's, what's next for the two of you as for you're the batting the ball back and forth. <laughs> the two of us actually right now, I, you know, in the same vein of kind of doing this Nat Fuller dinner back in 2015, I've been working on um, putting together kind of a, historical dinner tour. So through my research in my master's and working with Dr. Shields, I've found about 13 chefs from 13 different cities who were the kings of their craft in that specific city, say in the late 1800s. They may have been a formerly enslaved person, they may have been a freed person, but they had a reputable restaurants, catering houses, and businesses in these specific cities. So my plan is to build this kind of historical dinner tour and travel to each city um, and honor each of those chefs in the city in which they were born or where they had their businesses. Um, and within that, create a way for me to give back to the community. So like say if we're going to do something in Philadelphia, we're going to connect with a local culinary school in, in Philadelphia and we're going to encourage their students to, to be a part of the dinner and actually help and come and prep. And then 
we will offer those students scholarship money and, and connect with kind of the, the convention visitors bureau and say, Hey, this gentleman or this woman, because there are some women, women chefs in on this list, did some really great things in your city in 1856, right? And they had this great restaurant and it was like the number one restaurant in the city. Um, so he and I are kind of working together on kind of a proposal that we can kind of package up and we can just kind of drop off and send out to the CBBs in each city, work with some local chefs, work with the local um, culinary schools. Um, so basically, you know, build this tour, one, you know, to shed light on who these people were, to give back to the local community, whether it's through, it's through scholarships for culinary students, also honor any black farmers. So we, we want to try to use as much local products as we possibly can. So that money stays in the community. And of course, we also want to honor, it, it, it's, it's honoring, you know, the African Americans who, who don't have names, who never had names, and just give them, you know, just honor them through, through me cooking this dinner. So he and I are working on um, a proposal to kind of shop to someone where we can get some sponsorship, sponsorship dollars to, you know, to make this happen. Cause I mean, there's, you know, if you look at kind of the geography of the cities, it's, you know, it's Philadelphia, it's New York, it's Baltimore, it's DC, it's Savannah, it's Augusta, there's one in Denver, there's one in Mobile, Alabama. I mean, it's pretty much spread out through the country and you know, it's just that doing that dinner in 2015 has really inspired me to really want to take it to another level. And, you know, through through my relationship with Matthew, knowing Dr. Shields, I'm, I get to play this Nat Fuller character. And now, once again, I'm, you know, I can take these things a lot further. So, you know, those, that's kind of like what's on the kind of on the back burner. It's on the plate right now. We've actually, actually I said, talked to him the other day about, you know, you know, let's try to link up and find some, um, some sponsors, some connections. Let's talk to some people. You know, we also want to include people like products. So like we want to include um, Uncle Nearest, you know, which is a whiskey brand and it it's, uh, the story of Uncle Nearest was a former slave. He's the one that actually teaches Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. So the story is something that's new. People are starting to hear the story. Um, and Uncle Nearest, or his real name was Nathan, you know, he made, he was like the first African-American on record to be a master, master distiller of whiskey. Jack Daniels buys this, this distillery not knowing who Uncle Nearest is, not necessarily knowing how to make whiskey, but Uncle Nearest trains him, shows him how to make whiskey. So, like, we want to introduce and bring those people and bring those stories into these dinners as well. So, yeah, you know, that we, depth of storytelling, I think, is is so fundamental. Uh, we talk a lot about unsung hospitality heroes. That's kind of one of the bedrocks of, of what we do. And you're talking about the original unsung hospitality heroes of people that have kind of laid the groundwork. Uh, this is great. And you and I are going to talk again and again and again. And I know you bring a lot of value to people listening. 
I love the dynamic of the two of you. You are a scholar. I tell Matthew he's a poet, and I think those complementary approaches and perspectives and vision on the world, the earth, history, our industry is really, really great. Kevin, I cannot thank you enough for bringing so many new names to the conversation. Yes, thank I, you. I never you. knew who Nat Fuller was, and now I'm going to do my thing and geek out and go way down the rabbit hole and learn all about it, I'm sure. Uh, other people will as well. And I think that's, that's the point that you're trying to bring across is that we need to celebrate and respect the heritage and then take it to the next level and take up the mantle of a Nat Fuller. So thank you very much for being a part of this conversation. Well, and thank you for allowing me to share and then having me on it. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's most important to me is to, you know, to share the stories, you know, like you said, to talk about those unsung heroes who you know who you know who make our industry what it is love it cheers thanks for listening to the best served podcast subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at best served podcast tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes